0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com So today's topic is King David, David Amelech, King David. But I want to go back a little bit and talk about the Mitzvah to appoint a king. And the Roman council, one of the 630 mitzvot in the Torah, the Mitzvah to appoint a king. The Torah tells us in Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse 14, When you come to the land that Hashem your God gives you and you will inherit it, you will live in it and you will say, place on me a king like all the nations who surround you. You will surely place upon yourself a king who Hashem your God chooses. So this is a pasuk, this is a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So it seems like there's a mitzvah to appoint a king. So the question we have is we discussed this slightly before. Why did Samuel the prophet, when the people told him they want a king, why did he get so upset? Not only did he get upset, Hashem also got upset. So the commentators go through a great detail trying to answer this question. Why did Samuel get upset? Why did God get upset? So the redact from David Kinchi, one of the biblical commentators, he said, because they added this line, we want a king like all the other nations. So, and that's a very important idea. The idea that we don't want a king like all the other nations. We don't want to be like the other nations. We want a king like God commanded us. We don't want a king like all the other nations. So it's, uh, it's interesting because that's part of the verse. The verse says, when you come and ask me about to have a king like all the other nations, so it's already predicting the Torah. So the answer Ramban says is the Torah is predicting what will happen. It's not telling them how to ask. It's predicting this is what they will ask. And they asked in the wrong way. That's what the Torah is saying. The Torah is saying that they're going to ask you for a king in the wrong way. But still a mitzvah to appoint a king. But the problem was they asked for a king like all the other nations. The other answer is they wanted a king the shoftenu, to judge us. They tell Samuel, we want a king to judge us. But the king is not the judge in Jewish law. The king is not a judge. The Sanhedrin is a judge. So in a sense, they were rebelling against Jewish law by asking for a king to judge us. They wanted to be like all the other nations of the world where the king is the final arbiter of judgment. The Sifri says, they asked for a king too early. What does that mean? It doesn't, doesn't really explain. The Melvin says, because they asked for a king while Samuel was still alive. Samuel the prophet was still alive. He was a judge. He was a fantastic judge. There was nothing wrong with his judgment. Why are they asking for a king while Samuel the judge is still alive? That's the problem. That was the problem. So that's the reason why Samuel got upset. The Cleochar says, he says, the Torah says, The people who ask for a king to place upon them. The king should be on top of the people, not under the people. This is a very interesting idea. When the Torah mandates asking for a king, it says, ask for a king who will be your leader. Rather, when they asked for a king, they said they asked for a king who will be under us, not on us. They wanted a king who will be their servant. Not that they should be the servants of the king. This interesting, very fascinating idea the idea that the king should be on top and not underneath. What does that mean? It's very similar to today. When a community appoints a rabbi, do they want the rabbi to be on top of them <laughs> or, or to be under them? Do they want a rabbi who will serve them, do the funerals, the weddings, the birthdays, the breeds? Or do they want a rabbi who will encourage them to go further and enhance their spiritual growth? Do they want the rabbi to be under them or on top of them? So when they asked for a king who would be under them, that's when Samuel got upset. No, the king has got to be on top of you. The king has got to be leading you. The king has got to be pushing you. Not serving you, but pushing you. Interesting. So it's an interesting discussion of what the purpose of a leader is. Today, the purpose of a leader is to serve to serve the nation, to serve the people, to be under the people. But in uh, the, the ideal leader is, we're going to see King David, who was the ideal leader. He was the leader who led, who pushed the people to grow spiritually with his fellowship. We're going to talk about that. Okay, so the punishment the Jews got when they asked for a king was they got the wrong king. Well, that's, that's a, this a wild statement. A very wild state, Ramban Nahmanade says since they asked for a king in the wrong way, they got the wrong king. Who was the wrong king? The first king of Israel was King Saul. He was not the right king. David was the right king. But since they asked in an inappropriate way, they got the inappropriate king. That's a wild statement. It's the Ramban Nachmanadiz says this. I wouldn't say this, but the Nahmanades, the great Ramban Nachmanade, says this, of Moshe bin Nachman. Great rabbi in Spain, 12th century, just after Rambam passed away, these passed away, Ramban takes over. And Ramban was one of the first people who made Aliyah, the first great rabbis make Aliyah to Israel. He moved to Jerusalem, they couldn't find a minyan in Yerushalayim, they had to bring someone in, a, ninth, a tenth man from the villages around. And he uh, rebuilt the, temp- uh, the uh, synagogue called the synagogue of the Ramban, it's still there today, it's still going today. Um, imagine no minyan in Yerushalayim in the 12th century no, because the crusaders had destroyed the Jewish community completely and then the Muslims came in and they also destroyed the Jewish community anyway so that's the Ramban, the Ramban says they asked inappropriately for a king they got an inappropriate king King Saul was not the main king they got an inappropriate king so that's a very interesting idea now there are four mitzvot in the Torah which only apply to a king king of Israel. The form is of the Torah, only applies to the king. And the first one is not to acquire too many horses. Now, today we don't really think about horses unless you're a horse racer. Um, you got to be pretty wealthy to do that. But in those days, the army was based around infantry and cavalry. So cavalry were horses. The cavalry, the chariots, which were the tanks in those days, all drawn by horses. So horses were very critical for military strength and military might. So one of the mitzvot given to a king, it's interesting. So the Torah says, he will not have too many horses for himself so that he will not return the people to Egypt in order to increase horses. Now it's interesting because the vast majority of horses came in those days from Egypt. and you don't really think about Egypt as being a producer of horses, but they're called Arabian steed they were called Arabian steed they were produced in Egypt the best horses and the Torah says not to get too many horses what's too many horses so obviously the king of Israel would need as many horses he needed for the army for the for the cavalry for the chariots but on his own personal account he shouldn't have too many horses why Hashem says they shouldn't take the Jews back to Egypt Egypt was the main producer of horses he would send Jews to go and get horses from Egypt and they may stay there. So interesting idea, the idea of not going back to Egypt. We, it's enough. We came out of Egypt. We don't want to go back to Egypt. The so, a Mitzvah and the Torah not to go back to live in Egypt. You can go on a vacation, but not to live there. Number two, prohibition to marry too many wives. Now, this is a pipe dream today. Having too many wives, it's illegal in all countries I know of, uh, maybe in the Middle East, uh, you can have more than one, not Israel. Um, it's also illegal in Jewish law. After Rabbeinu Gershom, the Jews are not allowed to have more than one wife. So today, we don't think about this, but in those days, kings would have thousands of wives. You know, king Solomon, he broke this law. This law says a king is not allowed to have too many wives, which the Talmud explains is not having more than 18 wives. There's a lot of wives in those days. Imagine 18 wives. Boy, But in those days, we said the kings, probably the Saudi kings as well. We don't know how many they have in the harem. Probably hasn't changed much. History hasn't changed much in those countries. So the Kamran says the king is not allowed to have too many wives. Why? So the Torah says a reason. So his heart will not turn astray from God. Interesting. We see that King Solomon had many wives. And they brought the idolatries with them. That's the terrible tragedy of King Solomon he married strange women we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about king solomon how could he do this but uh, he married many wives and said you know what i'm so smart they're not going to influence me i'm going to influence them they're not going to be able to influence me and you know what they sure did influence him and we're going to see that the torah counts one of the, the bad strikes against king solomon and number 3 the prohibition to have not to have too much money to imagine you tell the king you're not allowed to have too much money. And the king says, how much money can I have? That's good. <laughs> it's a good question. So the Torah does not give a reason for this prohibition. It says the king is not allowed to have too much money. We find that King Solomon had a lot of money. It says "Gold, uh, silver was like nothing in Yushalayim. Silver was like stones in Yushalayim. So the king is not allowed to have too much money. But it's one of the mitzvot for a king. And... Uh, All the commentaries, the Targum Yonatan, Datzah, Kenim, Sefer all explain. The reason is because having too much money is having too much power and will lead the king to be arrogant, to be proud and arrogant. And consequently, the king will turn away from Hashem. So it's a very interesting mitzvah given to a king not to have too much money. It doesn't apply to anyone else. It only applies to a king. Why? Because the king will have power and money. That will go to his head. So having money by itself is not as bad as having power and money. So you have a lot of rich people around the world today, all these multi mega multi-billionaires, um, but they don't have power. They don't have as much power as a king. So therefore, the money is not going to go to the head as much as a person with power and money. And so I have the Chashverosh and the story of Purim. But the Jewish king is not allowed to have too much money on a private basis. So the mitzvah does not have apply to regular people. It only applies to a king. Because it leads them to being arrogant. And plus, if he has a lot of money, he'll want more money. King Solomon says in Mishlein, it's interesting, how would he know? lo says, A person who loves money will never be satisfied. A person who loves money will never be satisfied. So it's interesting. The more you have, the more you want. Therefore, the king who has money will tax the people even more. We see this by King Solomon. Shlomo Melech taxed the people terribly. We're going to see he had a lot of different ideas of building projects. He built a temple. Okay, fine. He built his palace. and Then he had to build palaces for his wives. Oh, it was a lot of headache, a lot of taxes, a lot of construction. Okay, so we're going to talk about that when we talk about Shlomo Melech. And that's the reason why his kingdom split. Because when it says when King Solomon died, his son Rechavum. The people, the elders, the people come to his uh, advisors, come to King Rehoboam, and they say, your father taxed us terribly. Will you lower the taxes? So Rehoboam says, give me a few days to decide. He asks his old advisors. The old advisors say, lower the taxes. He asks his young advisors, and they tell him, raise the taxes. Don't start off soft. The, king, the people are going to take advantage of you. So interesting. And that's how he lost his kingdom. So not to have too much money. Because the money goes to the person's head. And the person loves money. He's going to raise the taxes. He's going to go to his head. Interesting. In Jewish law, we know that in the Amidah, and the Sh'moneh Esrei, we pray. We bow four times. The Kohen Gadol had to bow every single blessing. The Kohen Gadol, the high priest, had to bow every single blessing. So today there's 19 blessings in the Sh'moneh Esrei. You know, it's still called 18. The rabbis added an extra one. Today it's 19 blessings. The Kohen Gadol would have to bow on every single blessing. The king had to bow right through the Shemone Esret. He wasn't allowed to stand erect at all. He wouldn't just bow and stand up. He would bow all the way through the Shemone Why would he bow all the way through? To give him some humility in front of God. So here's the man with the most power. He had the most power, the most resources. The most resources, he would get arrogant. Jewish law is he's got to pray to God bent over. He's got to show some humility in front of God. He's got to earn some humility. And that's interesting. And that leads us to the next mitzvah, is the mitzvah to have a second Torah scroll. We know that every single Jew, the last mitzvah in the Torah is the mitzvah to write down the words of this song. And the commentary is explained the words of the song is to write each thing. Every single Jew should write a Torah scroll in their lifetime. Now, the, R- the Rosh and the Shulchan say that you don't have to actually write a scroll today because the whole purpose is to learn Torah. So by buying Jewish books, a person fulfills this mitzvah. By having Jewish books in your house, you're fulfilling this mitzvah of having a Torah scroll in a house or buying our own Torah scroll. So instead of buying a Torah scroll, a person should buy Jewish books um, and have them available in the house to learn. So by the art scroll, read English, art humash, French, also, Art School Humash, Spanish Art School Humash, all the Art School Talmuds. Today, you can get the Torah in many different languages. Art uh, did a terrific job. And so, by buying these Sfarim, by buying these books, we fulfilled this mitzvah of writing a Sefer Torah. But the king of Israel had to have a unique Sefer Torah as well, which Tosfot says was a small size Torah this size. And he would bind it on his arm. So his tefillin would be on his left hand. And his Sevator torah on his right hand. Everywhere he went. Except when he went to the bathroom. He had to take it off. Um, and uh, he had the torah with him. To learn torah. Amazing. Amazing mitzvah. Why? Again, the reason is he shouldn't forget God. And he shouldn't become power hungry and arrogant. So he needs this extra reminder. The higher the person, the more reminders they need that there's a God above. So the more powerful the person is, the more reminders they need. And that's what Rashi says. Rashi says the more power, the more arrogance, and therefore the need to humble humility. So the king has to bow the most, and the king has to have a special sepator. that's the fourth mitzvah for the king. So number one is not too many wives, not too much money, and not too many horses. And lastly, the positive mitzvah of having a special sepatorah for himself, which he would carry around with him everywhere he went. And that is the, a very common theme, which is the theme of humility that goes right through these mitzvot. The trait of humility, indeed, the Tosefta says the reason why Yehuda, Judah, merited to be the progenitor of the kingship. The kingship was given to Judah and the blessings of Jacob before he died to his children. He says, The scepter will not depart from Judah. Why was Judah chosen to be the progenitor of the kings? Because of his great humility. That he uh, admitted that Tamar was right and he was wrong. So tremendous humility of Yehuda. And that's what David Amir says in Psalms. We're going to see one of the great qualities of David is his tremendous humility. He writes in Psalms, in Psalm 131, right at the beginning, exactly. it's interesting to look at this Psalm 131. Uh, lo gavali bi, lo rabu inai. My heart did not get proud and my eyes did not get lofty. He, was, he, didn't, he didn't think he was the greatest. You know, some people think they're the greatest. David Abimelech definitely did not get, uh, think he was great. Nor did I exercise myself in things too great or in things too wonderful for me. So the Midrash, Explains this verse one by one. The parts of this verse. Number one, he said. The midrash says, even when he had a right to be proud, he never got proud. So number one is when he was appointed as the king by King by Samuel the prophet. He never got proud. When he killed Goliath, and everyone he was the hero of Israel. He never got proud. When he brought up the holy ark to Jerusalem, and he had all the rights to be proud. He never got proud. So all these things never made David proud. David Hamelech retained his humility. That was the greatness of David Hamelech. and that's one of the things we're going to talk about. The word David is interesting because the word David is Dalit Vav Dalit, and the rabbis explain Dalit Vav Dalit has tremendous significance. Number one is it could be read as Dod. Dod means an uncle, but it's also Anil Adodi dodi Li. Dod is also beloved. My beloved David was God's beloved. How do he earn this title? Because he made God his beloved. If you make God your beloved, God says, you make me your beloved, I'm going to be your beloved and you're going to be my beloved. So it's a two-way street. Our relationship with Hashem is a two-way street. The way we treat Hashem, that's the way he treats us. The Rambam also says the same thing. Rambam says, when we believe in God, God says, I'm on your side. I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you special providence. The more a person believes in God, the more a person thinks about God, God is with them. So there's different levels of providence, Rambam says, based on a person's awareness of Hashem and based on a person's belief in Hashem. The more you believe, the more God is with you. The more you think about Hashem, God is with you more. So it's an interesting concept. So Hashem, David HaMelech was the one who praised God the most. We don't have anyone else who praised God as much as David. King David was the one who praised God. And he's called Dodi. He's called my beloved Hashem. Refers to to as Dodi. David is Dodi. There's another symbolism in his name. The word Dalit. You know, it's a beautiful book. Rabbi Akiva started learning when he was uh, 40 years old. He started learning Torah when he was 40 years old. And it says he didn't even know Aleph Bet. He was an illiterate shepherd. Amazing. It's like a lot of people today. They start learning late because they balei tshuva. There's hope for everyone. We find Rabbi Akiva started learning when he was 40. By the time he was 64, he was the chief rabbi. So 20, <laughs> 24 years later, it's just in time for retirement, right? Today, we're just in time for retirement. But he lived till 120, and he was teaching non-stop. Imagine. Uh, rabbi Akiva, amazing. One of my favorite uh, heroes in, in uh, Jewish history, Rabbi Akiva, started learning when he was 40. By the age of 64, he became the head Rabbi he became one of the top rabbis in Israel. He had 24,000 students, amazing. But it says when he started learning, he didn't know Aleph Bet. So, when you teach Aleph Bet to a 40 year old, it's not like teaching Aleph Bet to a two year old. Why? Because a 40 year old should ask questions Why is the Aleph shaped like this? And you know what? His rabbi didn't know. So, I don't know how, why this Aleph is shaped like this, and the Bet is shaped like this, and the Gimel. Rabbi Kiva wouldn't take uh, this is out of this is bed. He says, Why is this out of shape like this? Why is the bed shaped like this? And uh, the rabbis were scratching their heads. They never heard these questions. Children don't ask these questions. And Rabbi Kiva wrote a book called Otiot to Rabbi Kiva, The Letters of Rabbi Kiva. He goes through the letters of the alphabet and he explains each one. Amazing, amazing. And the article wrote a book based on that book. So you can today buy the book, The, the Letters of the Hebrew Alphabet. And it's based on this work by Rabbi Kiva. Anyway, he says over there a very interesting thing. He says every single letter has a meaning. So the Dalit stands for the word Dal. A Dal is a porpoise. David Amelech has two Dalits in his name. The first Dalit stands for Dalut, which is poverty, which is humility. The last Dalit stands for Dalut, which is poverty, which is humility. And the Vav in the middle points straight up. The Vav points up to God. So he's saying, for me, myself, I have nothing. Everything is from God. And then even after God does everything for me, I have nothing. So it's not me. In other words, whatever happened in David Amelk's life, he was the most humble person alive. hinted to in his name, that he says, it wasn't me, it was Hashem. I didn't do it. I didn't kill Goliath. Without God, I couldn't have killed Goliath. It was God, it was Hashem. It was me. I know I fought all these wars, but it wasn't really me. It was God's power. It was God's energy. I'm the king, but it's not really me. Hashem is the king. So, beautiful, tremendous humility. This David Amalek, tremendous humility. And we said that uh, when the Jews asked for a king in the wrong way, they got the wrong king. They are King Saul. We discussed King Saul the last few classes. And now I'm going to give you a little bit of David Amalek, a little bit of brief history, and then we'll go into great detail. David Amalek was born in the year 906 BCE. Amazing. It's about 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago. Well, we know the Jews came out of Egypt around 3,400 years ago, 3,400 years ago, approximately, approximate numbers. And he was the king of Israel 3,000 years ago. It's amazing history of the Jewish people 3,000 years ago. He was a king. we are going to see, eventually he became the king in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem 3,000 years ago. Today, they found all the archaeology. You have the city of David. They've, they've unearthed the city of David. Amazing the city of David is below the Temple Mount, which is the way it should be because the temple should be the highest place. Interesting, in Jewish law, the synagogue should be the highest building in town. So how, do you, how do you do that? How do you get a synagogue the highest building in town? So this is what I heard that in uh, New York, it was Olympia in York, uh, the Reichmans. they they, they rented, they, they had a, the big tower, Olympia and York, and they put a synagogue right on top of the tower. And then I heard also the Hilton Hotel in New the, on the top floor, they put a little synagogue. So, this way, the synagogue is the tallest building in town. So, anyway, so this became, it's interesting how this law became part of Christianity and part of Islam. They always want their churches and their mosques to be the highest building in town based on this halakha and Jewish law, which is 3,000 years old, that the uh, Jewish house of worship should be the tallest building in town. The Temple Mount was the highest mount, and the city of David is below the Temple Mount. Interesting. So they found all the archaeology is, uh, is uh, to date. They found the city walls of Jerusalem from the time King David. He was born in 906 BCE. He reigned as king for 40 years, dying at the age of 70. Exactly the age of 70, he was born on Shavuot and died on Shavuot. So one of the things we do on Shavuot is we read Tehilim. In memory of David Abimelech, it's his site. Shavuot is his site. We also read the book of Ruth. And Ruth was his great-grandmother. So Ruth was the great-grandmother of David. David, He died in, at the age of 17, 836 BCE. So born in 906 BCE, died 836 BCE. He was a descendant of the tribe of Judah, which we said it was a tribe of kingship given by Jacob, Yaakov, Avinu, on his deathbed. The scepter will not depart from Judah. And the tribe from which the Mashiach will ultimately emerge, which is David Amelot's progeny, the Mashiach ben David. We're waiting for him to come. Uh, this is a line we had in the Bukhah Amazon on Sukkot, that Hashem should revive the Sukkot David An-Ufaret, the the, the Sukkot of David which fell down. So that's the kingship of David, the line of David it should never fall. And Hashem should revitalize it, Bez We will see this in our days, Bez so David is mentioned first in Tanakh, in the books of the Bible, at the end of the story of Ruth and up Ruth, where it says Boaz married Ruth, who was a Moabite convert, who gave birth to Ehud, who gave birth to Yishai Jesse in English, who gave birth to David. So that's the uh, lineage of David given at the end of the book of Ruth. David was the youngest son of Yishai of Jesse. He was ostracized. The Midrash says an amazing thing. He was ostracized by his father and his brothers. They suspected he was illegitimate. So there's a very interesting background over here. It says Yishai was a very big tzaddik. After he had seven or eight kids, there's a big debate, was David the eighth kid or the ninth kid, depending on different uh, texts. So after having all these children, he had a second thought. He says, maybe my great mother was Ruth. And Ruth wasn't allowed to convert, and therefore I'm not allowed to marry a Jewish woman, and therefore I should divorce my wife. <coughs> he divorced his wife, and he uh, married someone else. And they switched places one night, and the wife got pregnant, and the other brothers, and he was, thought that the baby is illegitimate, and they ostracized him. They sent him out into the woods to shepherd the flocks alone, which is a very strange story, right? He was a young boy. He was out in the fields looking after the flocks, Until Samuel anointed him as the king of Israel. When Samuel anointed him as king of Israel, they all knew that he was kosher. There's no way he can be the king of Israel and be non-kosher. So they knew he was It was a relief for David. Imagine. Not only did he find out he was a kosher kid, but he also found out he was the king of Israel. Boy, that's amazing. That is wild. Imagine from being a nothing to being a somebody. Wow. From being someone who's sent out uh, to the wild animals to look after the sheep and be in danger every day. You know what? That's how he formed his very strong relationship with God. David Melik got a very strong relationship with God because he was out there in the fields, in the dark, with the pitch black, with the sheep, and looking after the sheep with the lions and the and the wolves and the bears. And that's how he got his very strong bond with God. Who looked? He would pray to God. He had no one else to talk to, and no father, no mother, no brothers. No one cared about him. It was just him and God, and that's where his big bond came from it's amazing so in a sense you find these orphans who are raised as orphans and if they're smart they'll build this relationship with God so they have a stronger relationship with God than most people and that that was the case of David Melech that's where his strong faith in God was based on his relationship with with God was based on his young years his early years when he was all alone in the fields and that's when his musical talent was uh, developed imagine singing songs of praise to God in the fields that's when he composed His greatest works, looking up the heavens, seeing the stars, alone with nature, he's composing these beautiful psalms, which we're going to talk about. So uh, when uh, Shmuel anointed David, it wasn't just anointing him as king, he now knew he was part of the family. He was a son of Yishai. He was legitimate and everything was fine. And then David was brought to King Saul to play the harp we talked about because Saul suffered from this uh, problem of uh, depression. And finally, David raises to preeminence when he kills Goliath. He also becomes very close to Saul's son, Jonathan, which we talked about. We said Jonathan was one of my heroes again because he was never jealous. He was ready to be second in command to David. He was ready to be David's King David's helper as opposed to uh, fight against him. And David also marries the daughter of King Saul, Michal which eventually Saul took away from him, gave it to another man, Palti ben Laish. And after Saul dies, we're going to see Abner ben Ner, who's the general of Saul, gives back Michal to David. And uh, so David was forced to flee many times from Saul. First, he found refuge in the city of Nov, the city of Kohanim, which was destroyed because of that by Saul. And uh, then he was pursued by Saul for over... Uh, many years, and eventually we talked about last week how Saul was killed in battle, the last battle with the Philistines. He fell on his uh, spear, and eventually his armor bearer, who was a Amalekite, uh, dispatched Saul. So that's how we ended off last week. Um, when Saul died, David gave a tremendous eulogy. He gave a tremendous eulogy of Saul and his three sons who had died with him in battle, terrible. And it says the Philistines. Had hung up his body on a city, and one of the and they buried him at night secretly. The Jews buried him at night. And uh, in the early reigns, in the early years of his reign, David was accepted only by the tribe of Judah. He reigned in Judah, in Hebron, the capital city of Judah was Hebron at that time. He reigned in, in Hebron for seven and a half years. They were the tribe of Judah. Um, the general of Saul, Abner ner was keeping Saul's son Ish-boshet, as the king, really was a puppet, but Abner Ben-Ner was this really strong general, we're going to talk about the general Saul, who was a big tzaddik as well, which we're going to talk about as well, beez HaShem. And in the early years of his reign, David was fighting all around him, Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and he's a very successful warrior, he's a gibor, was a mighty warrior Baruch HaShem, and leader of the army. And he led, eventually, His uh, the people gathered around him. All the other tribes, they saw him successful. He's a good king. They also gathered around him, so he reigned 33 years over the other tribes, seven and a half years over Judah. Altogether, 40 years, he was the king of Israel. 40 years, the king of Israel, and most successful king in many ways, which we're going to talk about um, militarily, um, morally. I mean, there was one flaw which we're going to talk about, Morally, a tremendously good king. Ethically, he was a rabbi, he was learned, he was a singer, he was an all-rounder. It's amazing how great, some of our greats were tremendous all-rounders. David Amelach melech excelled in every single area. Imagine. He was an excellent uh, judge. He was an excellent uh, musician. He was an excellent warrior. He was an excellent uh, designer. He designed the temple. And so many different aspects on a tremendous all rounder, just like Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses was also tremendous all rounder, every way. And so David Hammerich had to uh, fight many battles. All the nations around him wanted to take advantage of this young king with his small kingdom, and they started attacking him. And he and David Hammerich fought back. And his great quality of humility stood him in good stead because he forgave those who rebelled against him. And we're going to talk about that as well, especially his two sons rebelled against him. Um, um, and we're going to talk about that as well. So the um, biggest problem he had was his sin with Bathsheba, which the Torah calls a sin, but the Talmud says, whoever says it's sin is making a big mistake, which we're going to talk about. What happened with Bathsheba, this was really a turning point in his reign, because after what he did with Bathsheba, really what he did was, Let's talk a bit about it. So number one is that uh, Batsheva was married to this guy called Uriah HaKiti. Even though he is called the Khiti, he was not a foreigner. He was a Jew. Uriah was a Jew. He lived. He probably lived in a place which uh, was controlled by the Khittites. So he's called Uriah HaKiti. Uriah HaKiti was a general in, uh, in David HaMelech's army. And... Uh, he was guilty of treason. Why was he guilty of treason? Because David HaMelech tells him to go back to his, his wife. He says, I cannot go back to my wife. When my master, Joab, who is the general of Israel, is in the fields fighting, and the Jews are fighting a war, how could I go back to my wife? So he refused to go back to his wife. He refused a direct command from the king. Number two is he called his master, Joab, who was the general, as opposed to calling the king the master. So that's interesting. So uh, Uriah was liable on two counts of treason. And uh, David tries to get rid of him, which is what David was really, uh, Hashem was really angry with him. We're going to talk about. Um, Uriah, he sends Uriah to the front lines. He tells you the general, put him right in the front, make sure he's killed. Terrible, terrible, terrible. What David done was taken to the Sanhedrin, accused him of treason, and let the son Edrin deal with him. But instead of which, he used this underhand mechanism to get rid of Uriah for treason, which was not legal. He sent him to the front lines, and he got rid of him that way. And then he took Bathsheba. So now, what happens is Nathan Hanavi, Nathan the prophet, who was uh, the, uh, the next in line after Shmuel Hanavi, Nathan the prophet, comes to David, and he rebukes David. Now. What's interesting is that David Melach writes a psalm. Uh, he writes a psalm of David, a song of David. When Nathan Avi comes there, now it's not normal to write a song when you're being rebuked by the prophet. Why did he write a song that he was rebuked by the prophet? Because the prophet knew how to rebuke someone in a way that they will change. And this is a very important technique. Most people don't know how to rebuke, and most of us, the Talmud says, we've lost the art, art of rebuke. So, Natan Hanavi had the art of rebuke, which is what most of the other prophets didn't have because when they rebuked, they rebuked very harshly and no one listened to them. So, Natan Hanavi knew how to rebuke David. How did he rebuke David? And the answer is, he gave him a story. He told them a nice story, which didn't affect David in the least. Why well, was a story about someone else? So Nathan and David tells David the story. There was a rich man and a poor man, and a rich man had many cattle, many sheep, many cows, and he had a guest coming over to his house. And the rich man says to himself, "What a waste if I slaughter one of my sheep for this rich for this guest. Let me take the poor man's goat and slaughter it. The poor man only had one goat." And uh, Nathanavi is giving hints to David, and that goat slept in his bed. Obviously, it's not talking about a goat. And uh, so, but David didn't get the hints. David says, What the rich man took the poor man's goat, and the, the, the poor man's not going to die, he's not going to have any means of sustenance. Otherwise, he would get all the milk from the goat, he would be able to sell the milk and survive. But well, now the goat is being taken away by the rich man, the poor man's going to die. That poor, that rich man should be killed. So Nathan says to David, he says, "You are that rich man. You are the rich man. You took this poor man's wife away, and uh, you caused him to to die. And you pronounced sentence on yourself." And when David heard that, what are you going to say? I mean, you yourself pronounced sentence on yourself. Which, by the way, the Arizal says is what we will do in the next world when we go to the next world, and Hashem says, "You did this and you did this." And the guy will say, "What?" I did it, ah, this is my sentence. I pronounce sentence of myself. So obviously it's going to be done in a similar kind of technique. Arizal says when we judge other people, we're judging ourselves. We don't really realize. When we say, wow, that guy did that, what a bad guy. But if we did something similar, Hashem's going to use that against us. That's why it's very important not to speak Lashonara, not say bad things about people, because on Judgment Day it's going to be used against us. We see this in David and Melech. Nabi tells him the story. A tremendous parable and David says that rich man needs to die and then Natana, he says you are that rich man and David says i sin." it really struck him and he sings a song he said thank you Hashem for sending me this prophet who knows how to rebuke it was a prophet who didn't have a rebuke he said it straight to me you evil man how can you do this I probably would have rebelled but he said to me in a story and I judge myself I didn't realize it was me he was talking about. And I judged myself. How can I say I didn't do it? So that's a beautiful way of judging, of uh, rebuking people, telling them stories and letting them judge and see how they behaved in the same way. But to come out direct and say, you did this and you did this and you did this, never going to work. It's not going to work. It doesn't work. We just lost the art of rebuke. So even rebelling, even when dealing with our children, we have to be geniuses how to raise children, rebuke is very critical, how to raise children. So how to discipline in a positive way. So it says 90% positive praise and 10% negativity. It's always got to be couched in a positive manner. That's when I comes to David. you judge, you're the judge. I'll tell you the story. You judge the story. he says, wow, I'm the judge. Oh, sure. I like it. Oh, I'm going to judge he judged himself, he didn't realize he was judging himself, anyway, that's Bathsheba, so after Bathsheba, it says he, David, got punished terribly by Hashem, and he had many travails, so one of the travails was with his children, boy, 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 he had tough uh, he had tough things to deal with with his children Um, his son, Amnon uh, raped his half-sister, which is not really sister by uh, bloodline um tamar and david was heartbroken can you imagine it was his, his one sister and the brother they raped uh, he raped his sister and two years later another son of shalom killed amnon so he killed his brother for raping his sister and uh, david amenech was heartbroken now, obviously we have to go through these stories because they weren't related they're not real brothers and sisters we have to see why as well but uh, so Afshalom was the brother of Tamar Amnon was the half brother not related and instead of marrying her which he could have married her legally instead of asking David to marry her Amnon has plays a trick he says I'm sick and I don't want anyone else to cook for me except for my sister Tamar she knows what dishes I like David says sure he sends Tamar to cook for Amnon and Amnon rapes her. Well, the Talmud says he wasn't really successful. and That's why Amnon hated Tamar after that. But he could have married her and done everything legal. But instead, it's a terrible tragedy. And this was says one of the punishments of David for his affair with Bathsheba. And uh, number two is, so we have the death of Amnon, the rape of Tamar, the death of Amnon. And then Absalom eventually rebels against his father. David leads an army against him, imagine. Avshalom, the son of David, the most beloved son of David, leads an army against his own father and tries to kill his father. Terrible stories. And then Avshalom, the son of David, was killed by the general Yoab. And David is heartbroken. He lost two sons during his lifetime in terrible situations. His daughter was raped, terrible situations. And this was really the downhill from the time he fooled around with Bathsheba and uh, got rid of Urias. So this was all, even though the Talmud says he didn't really do anything wrong, legally, he didn't do anything wrong, but on his level, it was held that he did something very bad. And he was punished um, at uh, terrible times. And the second thing he did wrong was he told his son, his general, you're up to count the people of Israel. Now we know that we're not allowed to count Jewish people. We don't have to count the one, two, three, four. Uh, even when you count for a minyad, we don't count one, two, three, four. We count uh, the yarmulkes. We count the fingers. We don't count the people themselves. We say a pasuk. A verse that has ten words. We're counting the words in the verse. We're attaching each person to a, a, a word in the verse. And we get to number ten. So we don't have to count Jews. So the senses, having a sense not allowed. And David al made a big mistake, and he counted the Jewish people. He had Yoav count the Jewish people, for which it says many people died in a plague because of that. So David al the two things that we have against David, Batsheba and the census of the Jewish people. And then at the end of his life, his other son rebels, Adoniyahu, and he wants to be the king. And David has to has to appoint Shlomo to be the next king, officially having, him, officially uh, sanctioned as the next king, so that Adoniyah will not get out of hand. And so again, more troubles in his own family. So that was his punishment. He fooled around with someone else's family. Hashem says you are going to have troubles in your own family. You are going to have troubles in your own people. So he could have had an unblemished record, but this really, anyway, we're going to talk about all these things much more in detail. But probably the most significant character in the Book of Prophets is that of King David. The most significant character, imagine. And today, everyone knows. David, Menach Yisrael, Chai, Chai, Vekayam. One of the most popular songs in Israel is the song that King David should be alive forever. So the legacy of King David should be alive forever But Rabbi So King David is the first king of the line of Judah. And he is the founder of the Messianic line, which we're going to talk about. There's three main events that are discussed in Tanakh that detail the line to King David. And this is a very weird, how did we get King David? Which relationships, the strangest relationships in the Bible, The strangest relationships in the Bible. The first one is the relationship of Yehuda and Tamar. Uh, Yudah married off his son's heir first, and then Onan when heir died to Tamar, and they both died. The both sons died. They did terrible things Says they spilled their seed, and they were killed by God. And then he leaves Tamar, even though the third son Shelah, he says, I'm not going to marry Shelah to this Tamar. Tamar is a husband killer. So Tamar goes back to her father's house. She's waiting for Yibum to marry the third son and forgets about Yudah forgets about her. And then Tamar dressed up as a Zona and she entices Yehuda and he has relations with her. And uh, they have twins, Peretz and Zarach. And from this comes the messianic line of kings. Can you imagine? Hard to imagine this relationship. And the rabbis say she had holy uh, intentions. He may he may not have had such holy intentions, but she had holy intentions. And she brings these holy children to the world, Peretz and Zarah, from which the kings of Judah are coming. Amazing. One of the strangest stories. The second story is the line from Lot, which is Ruth was uh, Moab, descended from Lot, and Lot was drunk, and the daughters really thought that there are no other men around. She got, They got their father drunk and had relations with the father. And Ruth is the progeny of Moab. Again, very strange lineage for the kings of Israel. And the third story is the story of Ruth herself. She is a convert from Moab who marries the judge of Israel, the Boaz. Big discussion over there: was she allowed to convert? Not allowed to convert? Was she allowed to be Jewish? And Boaz marries her and dies the next day. And I would say, well, he did a no-no. He should never have married her. Anyway, he's coming from these three relationships, these three sordid kind of relationships. Obviously, they had these people had intentions which we can't see. Only God sees the intentions. We see the deed. Hashem sees the intentions they had. Was called lishma. They were doing these things for the sake of heaven to bring this messianic line into play. So why was a man chosen from this strange, strange relationships to be the king of Israel? And the answer, again, leads us back to what we talked about before. So that this person should never be proud. How can I be proud? What kind of lineage do I have? I come from Yehuda and Tamar. Boy, what kind of lineage is that? She dresses up like a Zonat and abominations with Yuda. What's going on over here? How can I be proud when I come from the lineage of Lot and his daughters? For goodness' sake, how can I be proud when I come from Ruth, who's from Moab? This uh, these people who uh, attacked us in the desert and tried to curse us. And how can I be proud? So this is the guarantee. This is a this kind of lineage is a guarantee that the king will never be proud had nothing to be proud about whereas king saul he could have been very proud he probably was why he had a lineage unblemished lineage going back to benjamin binyamin who the rabbi said was one of the four people who never sinned in their lives binyamin there were four people the Talmud says who never sinned in their lives once who were they binyamin benjamin number two was ishai ishai was the father of david and we who never, no one's ever heard of, Chilab was the brother of David. They never sinned in their life. They, they never sinned in their lives. And so, so Shaul could say, you know what, I've got this unblemished lineage. Don't talk about me. He could be very proud, whereas David could never become proud. Why? They just remind him of his lineage. Who do you think you are? Where do you come from? You come from Moab. Who do you think you are? You come from Lot. You come from Yehuda and Tamar. Where do you come from? So, that's the reason why, it's one of the reasons why. Also, there's a concept which is a very interesting spiritual concept, which is that the Satan does not want the Mashiach to be born. Satan does not want the Davidic line to happen. So, God allowed it to happen through the most devious kinds of ways where Satan doesn't even realize that, you know, Judah is thinking about, uh, she's a Zona, Tamar wants a child, and Hashem is busy making Mashiach. <laughs> it's like, you know, Hashem has this hand, this way of doing things that most people say, you know, I don't understand what's going on. You know, just when everything looks strange, Mashiach is being born. That's weird and that's strange. Okay, so, but that's the way it happened. That's strange. Anyway, so those are the different relationships. And we uh, we want the king to be unblemished with arrogance. The most dangerous thing is to have a king who is arrogant as well. He can destroy everything Jewish. He can destroy. We're going to see this later on. Two generations later, the king Yeravam ben Nevat. Oh, yo, 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 I can't even think about this guy without without moaning and groaning. This guy is a disaster. The head of the Sanhedrin, who was appointed over the ten tribes, who rebelled against the son of King Solomon. We're going to talk about him. Okay, a couple of weeks time. But every time I think about him, oh, yo, yo, see how bad a king can be. We make him and the pride goes to his head. Disaster, power in the hands of this this person who rebels against God because he's now the king. He's the boss now. So uh, David Amalekh had this ancestry which will guarantee that he won't get arrogant. Can you imagine? And that's the ancestry of the Mashiach. There's no way Mashiach can get arrogant. Why? We know you're an boy. We know where you come from. Not so great stories. Uh, Some sordid stories out there. So don't get arrogant. We know who you are. Anyway, he was one of the most greatest characters in Tanakh, we said, one of the most momentous stories of the Tanakh. It's about David and Goliath, David and Goliath, Goliath. And the physical nation, the Philistines, gather opposite the Jews to prepare for battle. Before the war starts, a giant Philistine Goliath, he must be at least nine feet tall, which is not impossible because we have guys who are eight feet tall today. So another foot. Okay, so he was a massive guy. And he started cursing the Jewish people. Now, what's interesting is the Talmud says they were cousins. Yeah, people don't know that. Goliath and David were cousins. How? Because they were related by two sisters, Ruth and Orpah. If you remember the story of Ruth, uh, this guy, Elimelech, he was the judge of Israel, Judah, and he leaves Judah because of a family, he runs into Moab to escape from the people who are asking for money. And he has two sons, Machlon and Chilion, who these two sons marry two daughters. These are the daughters of the king of Moab, Eglon king of Moab, Ruth and Orpah. And when he dies, when this man dies and his two sons die, his, uh, his wife Naomi wants to come back to Israel. And the two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, want to come back as well. And Naomi discourages them. We learn of the laws of conversion from there. We discourage them. And Orpah kisses her mother-in-law and leaves. It says, Orpah was the mother of Goliath. So she was Ruth's sister. Can you imagine? Goliath was Ruth's nephew, and David was Ruth's great-grandson. Wow. So Goliath must be much older than David, but it's interesting how they're related. Goliath and David were related, hard to understand. One went this way, one went that way. We see the same thing with twins. It's interesting, like Esau and Yaakov, Jacob and Esau with twins as well. One went this way, one went that way. There's no guarantees in life. But even twins can go different directions in life, totally different directions, totally different effects. David, one way, Goliath, the other way, related from two sisters who went different paths, who went two different paths. Amazing. Just shows how important the paths we take in life has tremendous effects on the next generation. Imagine. So what David and Goliath, descendants from the same family from two sisters and the same um, the king of moab eglon king of all, same person eglon king of moab and the torah tells us how great this guy goliath was his mighty his strength his weaponry he demanded one jew should come and fight one to one and whoever wins the battle is over that's it david was a young shepherd came to the battleground he saw the fear of the nation everyone was terrified of this man but when he heard Goliath cursing God, he realized Hashem is going to take vengeance. When you see someone cursing God, so David says, "You know what? God is definitely going to get rid of this guy. I'm going to be God's vehicle. I'm going to choose myself to be the vehicle of God to get rid of this guy." So he said, "If God is if he's cursing God, God is going to get rid of him. I'm going to be the vehicle to to do it." And King Saul. David, you're too small, no way, you're a young boy. Goliath is a man of war, he has much training, he's much older than you. And David says, Don't worry, I killed the lion, I killed the, the bear when they came for the sheep. And I can kill this guy, this cursed uh, cursed Philistine. And it's interesting. So he del- he he comes and defeats Goliath. We all know we talked about the story. He defeats Goliath tremendously but what's interesting about the story is there's an underlying thing because they were polar opposites goliath and david were polar opposites and it's uh, it's viewed as a prototype of the underdog overcoming the powerful opponent uh, that's when you talk about david and goliath this guy's david you know one time israel was like david and the arabs were goliath and then after the six-day war they called the arabs uh, david and we are goliath <laughs> we're, we're not the underdog anymore. We're the most powerful nation in the Middle East. Can you imagine that? We became the superpower of the Middle East. I think it's totally misunderstood, this whole concept, totally misunderstood. We're, we're living in a little island of the size of New Jersey, surrounded by uh, this uh, 250 million Arabs, potentially. Hopefully now with the Abraham Accords, more of them are our friends, but a lot of them are still enemies. So, Bezra shame, they'll all be our friends. And Mashiach will come. That's a true sign of Mashiach coming. Anyway, the clash between these two legendary characters of David and Goliath goes much deeper than simply a battle of the strong against the weak. David and Goliath represented opposite and opposing outlooks of life. And their battle and background to that battle indicate a fundamental clash of values. It's a clash of value systems. It's interesting, very fascinating, because Goliath, the name Goliath, comes to it it's it's related to the word megillah or galui or revealed goliath 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 means gilui panin, which means his face was revealed which means he was brazen faced he had no shame at all goliath had no shame at all and that's why he could curse god can you imagine the person cursing god the person curses their creator that's a person with no shame brazen faced and he wanted to choose. he wanted one man to fight against him. And the rabbis say that one man was God. He wanted to fight against God. He was blaspheming against God. He had no shame. I want to fight your man of war, the Jewish man of war, which is mentioned in the crossing of the Red Sea. When the Jews crossed the sea, they sang a song of phrase. Hashem ish Hamad, God is a man of war. And Goliath says, I want to fight your man of war. He's fighting God. Number two, every morning and evening, it says he chose the time where the Jews were going to say the Shema. Early morning, say Shema as soon as it gets sunrise. And in the evenings, after dark, Goliath would come out. Just when the Jews are meant to say Shema, we say, Hashem, Shema again and Hashem, Chad. God is one. Goliath comes out, send me your man of war. I want to fight your man of war. This would really put the Jews off from saying Shema. He wanted to choose the right time to put the Jews off from saying Shema. And he did this for 40 days and 40 nights because it took 40 days to get the Torah. So again, he's blaspheming. He's trying to destroy the basis of Jewish belief. That was Goliath. And we're going to talk more about it next week. A famous story with David and Goliath is really a story of a clash of value systems to be continued. But as well, I said, please join me next week. Same time, same channel as we talk about the story of David and Goliath and the greatness of David and Ba'ath. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.